keeping up with them. When we sent them to the Ukraine, uh, they got to the Ukraine after a number of different unscheduled stops, but their luggage didn't make it with them. So uh, our prayer is that when they come back to the United States, all of them will come back, um, including their luggage. They're here? Oh, there we are. All right, Dan, come on up here. Come on, yeah, that's right. You raised your hand in service, you get recognized. Either that, you gotta join the church. So how was the trip? <laughs> I'm still lingering, I guess, over the luggage thing, I think, basically. Is it on? Hello. The luggage thing was right off the get-go. There were storms in Chicago, delayed us. And as we arrived in Chicago, our plane overseas, two minutes left ahead of us. So that's what slowed us down, and that's where the luggage got tossed around. But the, when we got there, uh, we were on the go constantly. And if you didn't like to walk, you learned to walk. <laughs> it's a beautiful city, a lot of beautiful architecture, and the people are just are even more beautiful. The young people were very responsive, very eager to learn, uh, very knowledgeable in many ways, but yet uh, there was a lack of knowledge about the Lord. Mm -hmm. uh, it was told that the grandparents, when Russia came in, I guess religion churches kind of dwindled away, and then the next family didn't keep up the study to the kids, and then the kids were just basically a blank slate as far as spiritual things. So we were able to speak somewhat to that uh, every evening. We had uh, a Bible story, and they, they participated. They liked to talk English. We uh, spoke in English, and of course, I was ashamed. I didn't know but one word in Ukrainian, Barit, which is uh, hello. <laughs> so I could get hello out, and that was about it. But they, uh, they understood a lot of English. I was surprised. Our group was kind of the middle, high middle maybe, of their knowledge, but they, um, they enjoyed our, our lessons and they enjoyed, they listened through the Bible stories, and we tried to express God's love through those. Another group comes in after us, and they will have similar studies. They like to speak in the English, and the crew, the group that lives in Ukraine, will be contacting every one of those kids, all those children, and following up with God's word, trying to breach them for Christ. How many Ukrainians? Well, we had a class of 400, if you're talking about the kids, yeah. We had a class of 400. They kind of dwindled, just like anything. You know, they may have had classes in the evening, and, but they'd be back the next day. Uh, they, um, they participated. You had to maybe call on them by name, but uh, I was embarrassed at first. I, didn't, I was afraid to speak individually to one. I didn't want to embarrass them. But the gentleman who I was partnered with is an English teacher who lives there, and he'd just get right down in their face and say, hey, da, 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 whatever, you, you know, whatever you're speaking. And they would respond. They weren't embarrassed at all. They were just a little shy. That's all. They seemed a little shy. They wanted to know a lot about America. They think we're the greatest place, I guess, on earth, and in many ways we are. But I tried to impress upon them that they're laying a foundation there in Ukraine that they can build their own country if, if that's the way you know, they see fit, that uh, they'll be an asset no matter where they're at. Anything else? Um, oh, yeah, there's lots of things, but <laughs> I've got a whole sermon. Okay. <laughs> Thank you.
One last question I would ask you. How much seminary did you have to go on this trip? Zero. Okay. Teaching English and having the opportunity while you're teaching English and over 400 Ukrainians come to be able to share a Bible story with them. Uh, what a wonderful opportunity that is. Again, uh, we're going to be sending a team to Spain, sending another team to Wyoming. Um, you can be part of that mission endeavor. It doesn't take special training. It does take a special heart, one that loves people and wants to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Take advantage of God's opportunities to share Jesus either here in the United States or around the world. What a wonderful thing. also want to share with you, you've heard about our state mission offering, that offering to evangelize our state of Missouri. Our goal was $4,500, and we've just reached $4,600. So thank you very much for that. We're in Luke chapter 15, so open your Bibles to the passage of Scripture, if you will. As a little boy, uh, I was enthralled with the idea of my father uh, being part of the armed service during World War II. Uh, When I would ask my father about his service for the country... He would not talk to me much about what he had seen, but he did talk to me about one thing. My father was part of the North African invasion. Uh, He served in the Navy. He served on one of the ships there in North Africa. After his assignment was done there in North Africa, the Navy brought him back to New York City, and there He was part of the harbor protection. He worked on a net tender, a great net uh, in that harbor. He was the chief engineer in the uh, engineering room, and so he ran the ship. He loved his time. Uh, He also had a young wife here in St. Louis, and he called for her to come to New York City. My dad, who had never really gone much over maybe 15 miles out of St. Louis all of his life until he went into the Navy, used to tell me about New York City and how much he loved it and how much he loved the people in New York. He said, he said, Dwight, they were a little bit different than us, but I loved them very much. And he loved to tell me about the mayor of New York City, LaGuardia. He said, son, LaGuardia, the mayor would get on the radio and he would read, as my dad would say, the funny papers to the children of New York. Well, um, that caused me to do a little study on Mayor LaGuardia, and I found this one story about him. One winter night in 1935, the mayor uh, came to night court, and there, as he walked in, he being the chief executive of the city of New York, he dismissed the judge, and he took over the bench. That night, there was a tattered old woman who was charged with stealing a loaf of bread, She was brought before Mayor LaGuardia in night court. Her defense was this, that her daughter's husband had deserted her and her children. She was sick and her children were starving. 
The shopkeeper then was asked to testify. He refused to drop the charges and said to the mayor, Mayor, it's a bad neighborhood, and mayor, she has to be punished as a lesson to the community. Uh, the one that reported the story said the mayor, LaGuardia, sighed. He turned to the old woman and said, I've got to punish you. It is the law, and the law makes no exceptions. The judgment is $10 or 10 days in jail. The old grandmother sighed, and she looked down at the ground. At that point, the judge, Mayor LaGuardia, stood up. His hat was on the bench. He took his hat. He put his hand into his back pocket, pulled out his wallet, and put $10 in his hat. He said, there, I will remit the $10 fine and I will pay it myself. And then LaGuardia said this, and I charge everyone in court 50 cents for living in a city where a grandmother has to steal to feed her grandchildren. The next day, in the New York newspaper, this was reported. $47.50 were turned over to a bewildered old grandmother who stole a loaf of bread to feed her starving grandchildren. The judge forced the donation from a red-faced storekeeper, 70 petty criminals, and a few New York policemen. Now, friends, what kind of place do we live in? What kind of place that forces us, that causes us to do that which we should not do? And what is God's response to that kind of world? Because, sweet friends, we live in that kind of world. How does God deal with sinners? How does he deal with prodigals? I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 17, as we look at how God restores the prodigal. Luke 15, beginning in verse 17, and I would invite you to stand in honor of God's word. How does God deal with this sinful world? The Bible says in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 17, these words. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servant, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Please be seated. <clears throat> the story of the prodigal son is the story of God's restoring those who have found themselves in sin, those that have no hope. What the prodigal desired to find in the far country, he found in the presence of his father. 
When he confessed to his father, the father then in response brought out his best clothes and brought out those symbols of status and and gave unto him a celebration. It is how God restores those, those that have found themselves in sin, those that have confessed their sin unto God. God teaches us a lesson through the words of Jesus, how he loves us and what he gives his life for. There are six main ideas in this passage of Scripture. We have looked at two of them. We have seen how God restores. He restores how? By giving us a righteousness that is not our own. Look, if you will, at verse 22. The Bible says, But the Father said to his servant, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Now again, we talked about that last Sunday. Here's a boy that has come from the far country. Here's a boy that has spent his time in a pigsty. He is filthy. He stinks. He sweats. He is a boy that seems to be in good company, one you would not want to be there. And yet, what does the father do? The father calls the servant to bring the best robe. What is that robe? That's the ceremonial robe that the father would wear in great celebrations. He was a leader of the community. It was his garb he would wear to show his authority and his power. And he has the servant, the best robe, put on this filthy boy, this dirty, smelly boy. Why? Because what the father was doing is saying, I accept you back. I give you a place not only in the family, but I give you a place in my heart. Dear friends, how does God deal with prodigals? How does he deal with all of us who have gone our own way? Well, the scripture says this, he forgives us of sin. In 1 John 1, 9, the scripture says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Now, the hard thing there is the confession of sin. Because you and I live in a world that does not admit it's sinners. (laughs) I don't do anything wrong. It's the rest of the world that's wrong. Uh, The reason I do what I do is because of my mother, my father, my ancestry, my culture, the prejudice that is in my society. Uh, The society owes it to me. Sweet friend, to get saved, you got to get lost first. And the idea in the Scripture says God forgives sin, but we must confess our sin. And then God is faithful. What does that mean, God is faithful? That means God will keep his word. Has God made a promise to you? Have you read the Scripture and found a promise that God has? Then if God has made it to you, he will keep that promise. God doesn't lie. God doesn't cheat. God doesn't go back on his word. The promise is yours. And the promise is this, that he will keep you, that he will sustain you, that no temptation will come upon you, that if you trust in him, that temptation, he'll deal with it. Now, sweet friends, that's his promise. And he is faithful to keep it. And he will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I've had people say to me, Pastor, I I hear what you're saying, but you don't know what I've done. Sweet friends, the Scripture says he'll cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I don't know what you've done in your past. 
I don't know how you have violated God's law. I don't know what has taken place that has caused a separation between you and the Father, but I know this, that God can cleanse it. He can remove it. He can make your life whiter than snow. He will intervene for you. That's what it means when God restores the righteousness. And the Lord God clothes us with a garment of salvation. Remember Isaiah 61.10, the scripture says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will be joyful in my God. Now, why? Because of what my God has done. For he has clothed me with a garment of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. How does God restore our righteousness? He covers us with the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the garment of salvation. In Revelation 7, 13 through 14, the scripture says, And then one of the elders saying unto me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where have they come from? You see, the book of Revelation is God's open door. It's God's open window into the end times. What's going to take place at the end of this world? And in this passage of scripture, the, the idea is that there's a great throng before the throne of God, worshiping God. And worshiping the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And the angel says to John, who are they? And John says, and I said to him, the angel, sir, you know. And the angel said, so he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, washed their robes, and were made white in the blood of the Lamb. What does it mean to have your righteousness restored? It means that you are covered with the blood of Jesus. That makes you clean. God creates in us a true righteousness through the blood of Jesus. Ephesians 4.24 says that you were put on a new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. How, how does God make us righteous? He makes us new. And the word there, new man, means new of kind. Not an old man that turned around and tried to do better and changed his habits. No, the idea there, when God gives you his righteousness, when he covers you with the blood of the lamb, he makes you new. You're a new creature in Christ. Created by God, the scripture says. Created according to God. What does that mean? God made you in his image. What is his image? His righteousness and holiness. Dear friends, you have a gift. God remade you when you asked Christ to be your Savior. When you confessed your sin, when you bowed your knee to him, when you gave your life to him, God made you new. He made you like him. He gave you a new heart, a new life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knows no sin to be sin for us that we might become. Here it is. The righteousness of God in him. Not a false righteousness. Not a human righteousness. Not trying as hard as you can. But you are the one who has been given the righteousness of God himself. Bestowed upon you. And the scripture says in verse 22, he put a ring on his hand. That ring was a signet ring. Not only did God restore the righteousness, put it on him, but he gave him a credibility. He gave him authority. Literally, the signet ring meant that he could handle any kind of legal. He could do civic events. He could do anything, buy or sell in the name of the Father. 
And in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, the scripture says this, And if children then heirs, heirs of God, join heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer him, we may also be glorified together. Who are we? What does it mean to be restored? How does God restore the prodigal, this broken world? How did God restore you? He put his righteousness in you and he put his credibility. He made you a full partner. You are, according to this, God's children, his sons and daughters. You're heirs to all that God possesses. Now think about that. Everything... I've told you this story. I I love this story. When the children were small, just growing up, learning about these concepts about life and death and what happens afterwards, Joshua came up to me and said, Dad, when you die, can I have your shotgun? It, It was just the kind of thing. He just wanted to make sure you're heirs of everything God has. You're not a pauper. You're not a beggar. You're not a second class citizen. If you have bent the knee to Jesus, if you have cried out to him and asked him to make you new, if you have confessed your sin to him and his righteousness has been given you through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, everything he has belongs to you. You are a partner with Jesus. A partner in what? Well, the scripture says in his suffering and in his glory. That's what we inherit. And so the scripture says he restores our righteousness. He gives us a credibility. But the scripture also says, and sandals on his feet. You see there in verse 22? What does God do? Well, to a slave, and understand about this boy. This boy was a slave to a Gentile in the far country. The idea there, the scripture says, he joined himself. Remember, I shared with you that word joined in the Greek means he glued himself. He became part of that culture, part of that people. Whatever the Gentile pig owner wanted done, the boy had to do. He had no voice in it. He was a slave to what took place. And as he comes home like a slave... If he had shoes, they would have been old and dirty and worn. He had walked the whole way. But probably what had taken place, he had sold his old sandals to buy food, and he came home barefooted. You see, in that culture, if you would take your slave on a trip, you would take the sandals off the feet of the slave. Why? So they wouldn't run away. In the house, the house servants would not have shoes. They would go barefoot so they wouldn't make noise as they went through the house and wake up the master. The boy came back and the father gave him shoes. And by that, what he said is, you're not a slave. You're my boy. You have status in this home. You have sinned against me. You have asked that I were dead so that you can get the wealth. But what I do now is I forgive you and I restore you. Romans 6, 6 says this, Knowing this, that the old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that you should no longer be slaves of sin. 
You see, sweet friends, we make our sins out to be light things. That passage of Scripture, Romans 6, 6, says this, knowing this. What it means is you can depend upon this. You can know this beyond a shadow of a doubt. That our old sinful selves, the old man, was crucified with him. That old corrupt nature, that, that old nature that wanted to sin, put self first, me generation, that has died. How did it die? It died in the death of Jesus Christ. And what that means is when Jesus died, my sin nature died. And the Bible says to us this, the hold of Satan upon us was broken. You are no longer slaves. So sweet friends, don't tell me that's just my nature, that's just the way I am. That's just the way I was raised. No, you were created new. When you accepted Christ, the old man died on the cross with Jesus and you became a new creature in Christ. Created by God in His way. So live like him. Live like one who's been set free. Live like one whose old nature is gone. Live like one who is a son or daughter of the king. In Romans 8.15, the Bible says this about us, about what Jesus did with our status when he died upon the cross. Romans 8.15 says, For you do not receive a spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom you cry out, Abba, Father. Dear friends, you are sons and daughters adopted by God. The idea here is more a Roman idea than it is a, a Jewish idea or a Greek idea. The Romans adopted children. They wanted their lineage to go on. They wanted their wealth to go on. The word adopted speaks to us of this, that God has brought us to a point that we are His. We belong to Him. We were created by Him, but now we belong to Jesus. And He has claimed us as our children. Pastor, what are you trying to say? What I'm trying to say is when you get to heaven, God's going to say, that's my girl, that's my boy. And they're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and the adoption price was his blood. We have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The word Abba, Father, literally carries the idea of an infant that cries out, a helpless utterance of total trust, of more of feeling than of knowledge. And the English translation of Abba is Papa. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Mark 14, 36. Friends, what is my relationship to God? Because of what Christ has done for me, because God has restored the righteousness and he's given me status, then I can speak to God as a child speaks to a beloved father or grandfather or grandmother or grandmother. Abba. It's a word of affection. And I ask you today, Parkway Baptist Church, I ask you today, so who's your daddy? Who's your daddy?
your daddy is Jesus Christ, the Lord. Your God made you. And every day as you walk through this life of toil and difficulty and heartache, that Father follows you and loves you and cares for you. Yes, this is a far country. Yes, this is a world that will put a grandmother in jail for trying to feed her starving grandchildren. But God made you new. God made you new. Live like it. Does that mean the toils and the difficulties don't come? No. Does that mean that times do not come where we begin to doubt who we are? No. But what it means is that God will never leave his adopted children. He has restored their righteousness. He has given them credibility. He has given them a status. And the Lord God has restored a joy and a fellowship. Look at what it says in verse 23. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. There was a celebration to be had. There was a time of reunion. Dear brothers and sisters, do you realize how much God loves you? If you were to run away from God, if you were to go to the far country, if you stay away from him because of shame and fear, God wants you to come home. He wants you to come back to his table. He wants you to put your feet under his table in his house. The idea of the celebration here is an interesting celebration. When a family celebrated, when they came together as a family, they might have a lamb to eat, but a fatted cow... How in the world would that fatted calf? Well, the idea is that the father had been preparing for this celebration for a long period of time. He had chosen the calf at birth. He had fed the calf and had the calf prepared. Why? Because he was waiting for the moment when the boy came home. He's waiting for you. Are you disconnected from God? Is God far away? Somehow when your prayers are offered up, they don't go any higher than the ceiling? What I'm saying to you right now is that God has prepared a celebration. He has prepared the moment when you come to yourself and come back to him. That's what he's about. He wants you in his house. When was the sacrifice prepared? Revelation 13, 8, again, that passage of the end times. The scripture says this, all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. What does that mean? That means all of those that say they do not believe, all of those that curse the name of Jesus, all of those at the end time will bow the knee to Jesus and worship him. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God has been preparing for your coming home from the very beginning of the world. And that sacrificial lamb, that Jesus Christ, has all power. And he is worthy of all worship. Revelation 5.12 says this, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus is worthy. 
He is worthy of your heart. He is worthy of your obedience. He is worthy of your sacrifice. And He is worthy of your worship. We enjoy tearing down our heroes. We enjoy finding fault with individuals. Because somehow, in a perverted way, it makes us feel better if we can cause others to fall. We, friends, Jesus will never fall. He is worthy of all worship and honor and praise. All glory given unto him. That celebration, what's it like? In Matthew chapter 22, 1 through 4, the scripture says this, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, Now, you want to know what heaven's like? You want to know what this celebration is like? The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage of his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. That's the world we live in. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. Come now to the wedding. You want to know what heaven is like? It's like a celebration at a wedding. The groom is there. He has invited the guest and the bride now steps through into the church and walks down the aisle to meet its bride. And who is the bride? It is the church. It is you. And when God talks about the reunion, when God talks about heaven, the best way he can describe it is a wedding celebration. Come to my house, he says, and I will give you the ring of sonship. I will give you the robe of fellowship. I will give you the feast of worship. I will place upon your feet the shoes of discipleship. I will take you out of the far country and bring you into the circle of my love. The joy of fellowship is for all who repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. The fatted calf. Well, why doesn't the scripture said, and the father said, go bring the bologna out of the refrigerator and let's have bologna sandwiches, okay? Why doesn't he say, we're, we're talking about heaven, we're, we're, we're talking about the glory of the home of God. Why does he say the fatted calf? Remember I shared with you a family celebration would have been a lamb? But a fatted calf would feed over a hundred people. And, and when God talks to us and, and he shares with us about what it means to be restored, what he's talking about is a great celebration that cannot be numbered. All of those who have gone before. Tomorrow I will stand in this pulpit and I will share a funeral service of one who is gone. One of the things that I will share is one of the daughter's comments. And the daughter said, as we were at dad and mom's house before we would leave, my dad would say, uh, daughters, do you have enough money to go home? When the daughter said that, I said to myself, I wish I'd have been part of his family. 
And then he would say this, I never want any of my daughters to go without. You ever think about heaven? You ever think of the celebration that takes place? The, the, the time and the people that you're going to be with? I, I want to sit down with Joshua. I, I, I want to find what it was like to take on the leadership after Moses had led them. Joshua, how did God walk with you? Where did he meet you? How did he give you strength? I want to sit down with Samson. I really do. And Glenn, I want to ask him, how in the world did you get here? All the things you did wrong. I want to sit down with James, the half-brother of Jesus. And I want to ask him, Dave, what's it like to have a perfect brother? And listen to Mary, the mother of Jesus, say to me always, can't you be more like Jesus? And, and then you write such a practical book inspired by your half-brother. Glorious James. Why do they celebrate in heaven? Zephaniah 3.17 tells us. Why celebrate? This life is hard. It's difficult. Why? Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God in your midst. The Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Why is heaven a place of joy and fellowship? Because Jesus is in our midst. He's not out there busy with the celestials. He's right here. Before I come to the pulpit, I, I take time. I go over my sermon. I, I preach it to myself because the number one person who needs to hear this is me. And as I got to this point, um, I heard Becky say, he's down the hallway in his office. And um, most of you know that little Josh uh, and McKinley and Erica have been in Georgia for a while. And little Josh is here. His mom and dad are in the nursery, keeping the nursery during service. But little Joshua wanted to see Papa. And so he came into my office. I was, sorry, in the restroom. And he began to cry because I wasn't there. You ever cried because God wasn't there? God didn't hear and all of a sudden, I came out and walked in, and there was little Josh. And Howard, just like yesterday, he said, Papa, Papa, cookie. <laughs> How good is my God? 
Two or three months ago, somebody gave me a package of kids' cookies. Little Josh didn't care. They were stale at all. We rejoice in heaven because God is in our midst, not the streets of gold, not the no more pain or sorrow or death or crying, not because we have to get along with each other now. We rejoice because he's in our midst. In Luke 15, 7, the scripture says, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. That's what the scripture says. God restores our righteousness. He gives us credibility. He gives us status. There's a joy and a fellowship when he restores us and he restores life. Look at verse 24. The scripture says, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He restores where there was death. He gives eternal life. The boy by the law should have gone to a funeral rather than a feast. He had rebelled against his father. He had broken the rules. He should have died. And yet the scripture says, this boy who was dead is alive again. The interesting translation of that is this. For this my son was dead and is alive again. Literally it says, he is beginning to live again. And that's what happens when Christ comes into our heart. We begin to live again. What kind of life were we in in the far country? In Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3, it says this, And you made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in you of disobedience, among whom also you once conducted yourself in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were children of the nature of wrath, just as others. That's where we were. And Christ has made us alive. He has given us life where there was death. How did he do that? He did that through the blood of the Lamb. He did that by giving his life. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He gave us a spiritual Life. And he brought life where there was only death. In Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, the scripture says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Why did he do all this? Because he loved us. Even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together. How? He made us alive together with Christ. And raised us together and made us together in the heavenly places with Jesus Christ our Lord. In that age to come that we might show exceedingly the riches of his grace and the kindness of Christ Jesus. We were restored from death to life. And we were restored from lostness to being found. God restores the lost. You see, without Christ, we had no hope. We could not do it ourselves. We could not go to enough churches. We could not submit ourselves enough. We could not pay ourselves out of hell. We were lost in the far country. 
And the scripture says this in Matthew 18, 11, the son of man has come to save that which was lost. Jesus came to the far country and found us. And if we're found, what does that mean? Romans 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, there it is, not by works, not by trying harder, but by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God made us right with himself through Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. God's the one that does it. Michael Rand, in his book, For Fathers Who Aren't in Heaven, tells the story of the family. Um, One of the things that he would love to do is he'd love to take his family out for a night, whatever that may be, all the children, the wife, all of them together. And then he'd come back home and he'd start a fireplace and he'd cook popcorn. Well, his little boy, little Billy, had been a pest all night in the restaurant on the drive back, all about him. And so when they got home, Ron said to little Billy, it's time for time out. And what that meant in that family was that little Billy had to go to his room. And the rest of the family, all the children, got to go to the living room, and Daddy made a fire, and then Daddy popped popcorn, and they all had that fellowship time, except for little Billy. Any of you here ever been sent to time out while everything else goes on, and you got to sit in a dark room by yourself? Little Billy sat there for what he thought was almost an eternity. And then the door cracked. And his father, Ron, walked in. Little Billy said, Daddy, is everybody having fun? Because he knew he wasn't. And his daddy said, yes, son. And his daddy said, and I decided to come and sit with you because I love you. Now, you can leave this place and not submit to Jesus. You can go your own way, do your own thing, go back to the far country and enjoy every bit of it. But your father's going to wait in the room for you. Your Father has prepared a feast for you. And your Father longs and watches for you to come back. He's ready to do all of these things. He's ready to restore your righteousness, give you credibility. He's ready to give you status, joy, and fellowship, and life. And, And He's ready to bring you from your broken condition and make you whole. But you got to come to yourself. Or maybe in our vernacular, it's better said, you got to get over yourself. The 
The celebration is there. It's waiting. Will you come back home? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I would ask in these moments that truly we would turn our feet toward home. That Heavenly Father, we would no longer waste our life in the far country. That we would no longer walk away from you, Lord, and forget your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your love. But, Heavenly Father, we would turn our heart and our mind back to you. We, Lord, would surrender ourselves to you. And, Heavenly Father, give you all of ourselves. Everything we are, everything we will be, everything we could be. We'd surrender to you. And, and Lord, that means... That means, Lord, loving you like you love us. That means wholeheartedly coming to you in prayer. Having, Lord, the diversions, having the things go on around us, but, Lord, centering our intention on you. It means putting you first. It means asking you what should be done in this situation. How could you be honored through our actions? It, it means, Lord, finding that individual who is broken and ministering to them, caring for them, loving them. In a way, Lord, that you would love them, that you would give to them. Lord, it, it'll take our time. It'll take our effort. Heavenly Father, there are times it will be very inconvenient but, Lord, it is your call upon our life. So, Lord, my prayer is that we would say yes to it. That, Heavenly Father, from this moment on, we would begin to look back toward our Father. We'd begin to look to heaven and anticipate its glory. But, Lord, more than that, we would look forward to the moment when we, like the great cloud of witnesses would sing holy, holy, holy to the Lord God Almighty and Heavenly Father the Lamb that was slain for he is Lord. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. To follow Jesus, what does it mean? Does it mean to be perfect? No. Does it mean that we'll never sin again? No. Does it mean we'll never make a mistake again? No, but what it means is it is the act of surrendering my life to him. Have you done that? Have you, have you given Jesus the reins of your heart and said, Lord, whatever you want to do in me and through me, I'm willing. This is your moment. This is your time. Sweet friend, we're the prodigal. We're the ones he's calling. But we have a right to make a decision today to say yes or to continue to live in the far country. That's our decision. What will you say today to the invitation that Christ has given? Let's stand. Step out of your pew. If God is leading you, if the Holy Spirit directs you, come forward. Let us pray for you. Come make a decision to follow Christ, to be obedient to him through baptism, to join the church. 
or whatever decision. Maybe it's simply to come down here and bow and pray about a circumstance that's bigger than you are. God's going to hear. God's not only going to listen, but the Lord God's going to begin to prepare the answer today if you'll step out. Let's sing. This is your opportunity to respond to the message. Will you sing with me or come to the altar and spend time with the Lord? I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me. I still will follow. No, none go with me. I still will follow. No, none go with me. I still will follow. No turning back. No turning back. My cross I carry. My cross I'll carry. Jesus. Following Jesus is a solitary, solitary moment. But once you take that step to follow Christ, you are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Lord, we ask that you continue to bless this service and bless it in your spirit. Amen. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, more verse no turning back my cross I'll carry my cross I'll carry till I see Jesus 
Introduction here. Okay, I have Allison TG, who is coming by statement, and I'd like to introduce her to the congregation. If you, uh, uh, in, if you would like to accept her, please stand. Thank you. All right, and Quay is her deacon, and we'll go ahead and have them go out that straight that way. And uh, so they can greet her. So we just walk that way. And all right. And I think Pastor's still counseling over there. So I think that's all we got going on right now. All right. So we will, you may be seated. Go ahead and take a seat. And uh, we will receive our offering. Do we have someone to pray for our offering this morning? There he is. All right. He's ready. All right. We'll receive our offering now. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, as we were singing, I pray that uh, it's our words out of our heart and spirit to you. 